Welcome, FinTech Talkers, to a special edition of the FinTech Talk Show. This is your host, Patty, and our guests today are five trend-setting CEOs and a general manager of a large FinTech business, all shaping the next generation of technology. Today, they are not only going to share what they're building and focusing on, but they're going to do some crystal balling for me and for us and make some bold prognostications on technology and societal and consumer behavior trends. The FinTech Talk Show is about FinTech, artificial intelligence, decentralized finance, Web 3.0, and the metaverse, and how these are fundamentally changing our lives. Tune in to my interviews with the CEOs of Unicorns, Future Unicorns, the Disruptors, and the Big Thinkers, and do subscribe to our newsletter at fintechtalk.substack.com to be always in the know. The best way to support this podcast is by giving it five stars on the platform you're listening. This podcast is made possible by the supporters of iValley, a corporate fintech accelerator catalyzing development of big ideas and innovation in fintech and AI. For this edition, I'd like to recognize three of our supporters. Amdocs, with more than 40 years of unparalleled industry expertise, Amdocs is a trusted partner to the world's leading communications and media companies, enabling them to make it amazing for their customers. Jiffy.ai, with their smart platform, they're enabling the autonomous enterprises built on AI and automation. And the Breakthrough Lab, Bank of America's Breakthrough Lab is an impact accelerator program that provides economic opportunity and capital access to Black, Hispanic, Latino, Native American, and other underrepresented minority entrepreneurs. Do you want to hear insights from founders and CEOs of leading AI startups that have raised venture capital on what the future of AI is going to look like and where are we on the journey to AGI or artificial general intelligence? Do you want to get a sneak peek on the mega trends that will shape how we live and work in the future? Then stay tuned. My guests today are Jags Kandaswamy, good friend, co-founder and CEO of Latent AI. They are building technology to deploy AI on the edge and also optimizing uh, deployment of models. Dr. Louis Leo, uh, CEO of Eigentech, a small date, data AI company with focus on intelligent document processing and a lot of applications in financial services. Sean Austin, CEO of Helios Life Enterprise. Weistone Intelligence is one of Sean's company's expertise for Wall Street, a new category of investor insight derived from Weistone for off executives. Ahan Sarkar, GM at Helix from Q2. Ahan, welcome back to the show. Uh, Q2, Helix at Q2, as you know, cloud native core banking purpose built for embedded finance. My good friend, Dr. Riyadh Hartani, who's an expert in many things from AI to space tech and quantum computing. Stephen Ramirez, also a good friend, CEO of Beyond the Arc. He's an expert in customer experience, amongst other things, in financial services. Welcome, gentlemen. Let's start by a quick introduction and take um, and your take on two, three mega trends, in your opinion, that are going to shape 2023 and beyond. On the backside of that, after the introduction, we'll take some of them and explore. Feel free to call out sub-trends for the big trends categories like AI. 
Why don't we start with you, Riyadh, and then maybe Sean, Jags, Lewis, Ahan, and then Steven. Riyadh. Excellent. Thank you, Paddy, for putting this together, and uh, pleasure to meet you all on uh, on the Zoom here. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Riyadh. Um, very briefly, uh, well, I will start like now. I have a PhD in AI, actually. I did some work, you know, back then, over two decades ago, on how to combine numerical and symbolic AI, right? And from there, I went on into... Uh, primarily building startups in Silicon Valley. So I've been involved in, in few, pretty much all of them in, in building the uh, the internet infrastructure, right? Up to probably 10 years ago, where I jumped more into investing and advisory work with investors on a global scale. Um, yeah, so as far as um, macro trends, I mean, there are a number of going on uh, that you know one can talk about, but I, I, I thought I would pick three that are close to me at the moment. I mean, the... And for each one of them, probably approach it from the perspective of uh, what are the key questions being answered and what are the key challenges, right? So the first one, since we're talking about AI with a transversal topic here, uh, so I, I think for me, AI, th there are a few things that are sort of on the back of my mind and uh, probably worth discussing. Uh, the, the first one is really... Uh, you know, how is AI evolving and how close are we to what we call uh, AGI, so artificial general intelligence, where we we get closer to uh, to like human models of intelligence and reasoning and all of that, right? That's one. The second one is, uh, you know, obviously the last like uh, 10, 15 years been primarily uh, around machine learning and specifically deep learning. And the key question is, uh, uh, what, what are we at? Are we hitting limits? Uh, what, what's the room for, like, you know, combining multiple techniques to basically address AI problems, right? And, and the third one is really uh, more in terms of the impact of some of the new AI innovations, like uh, popping up over the last, uh, you know, two three years in the context of uh, generative AI and content generation with AI, and how it impacts businesses and economies and all of that, right? That's AI. As far as um, the second macro trend, for, for me, it's really, you know, and again, another transversal topic is, uh, is cybersecurity. And specifically, what are some of the key questions being looked at? And, and one of them, for me, it's really the, the, the key question, which is, uh, you know, with, with, with quantum technologies evolving as far as building quantum computers with a higher number of qubits and so on, how close is it to building, uh, to basically breaking, uh, you know, all the public key infrastructure type like algorithms, and, and, and that basically opens up the door on, on, you know, sort of like, you know, a balance, you know, computers with quantum computers to break these algos and, you know, new algorithms that are, you know, basically evolving, being developed to, to overcome that, including algorithms making use of quantum technology like quantum key distribution, right? For me, that's a key question because cybersecurity will be across the board. Then the third one that I wanted to point to is, uh, you know, we're talking FinTech, we're talking AI, uh, and the underlying, um, you know, infra is, is definitely key. Infra in terms of like reaching, um, you know, like, you know, people to basically use this application and so on uh, as far as like internet build, right? And for me, as far as like... Uh, Internet evolution, uh, probably the most important thing going on at the moment is uh, is really this, like, you know, sort of, a, I would call it space 2.0, as far as space internet 2.0, with all the new uh, you know, constellations popping up, right? 
you know, we, we know Starlink, we, we know there are a couple of others. I mean, there, there are a few. So basically we're having uh, thousands of satellites uh, at low earth orbits, you know, at a thousand kilometers plus minus, and, you know, building a new internet infra around that. So there are lots of implications there uh, from the perspective of accessing the internet, you know, new business models, geopolitics. And, and, and I think that, that that's another key theme uh, that, that I would like to, uh, you know, basically point to, right? I mean, there are others as far as Web3.0 and energy consumption and, and many other things. But for me, this AI, cybersecurity with quantum, internet with space internet will, will be key themes to look at. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Riyadh. That That's pretty broad and good good topics. Let's see if we can get to that in the hour. Sean, your th two to three megatrends. Right. So I had the um, kind of like fortunate luck of life to see the tail end, I think, of web, right? This idea of how we can now pervasively, and I wouldn't call that AI yet, but pervasively connect with everybody to mobile applications. That's something I spent, you know, a lot of my formative years in for software and have thought about like big data since the beginning of apps, right? This explosion of, of the iPhone, right? And actually having the ability to um, now mobily, right? Compute and everything like that. So I bring that up because now to me, like the explosion that really open AI has driven, right? I'm, I call it like a little bit of luck, call it marketing, call it, you know, Satya Nadella pumping AI for the last four years uh, as a philosophy at Microsoft. So it's not like it's it's brand new, but it reminds me of what I saw directly with apps, which is this explosion is going to certainly drive investment, adoption, usage. And the way I've categorized it from that entire career is around like the interface itself. So conversational UI for me or natural user interfaces are locked directly to the underlying infra that's powering it. And right now we're seeing AI power um, an interface as, as natural as it gets. So, you know, being able to actually now, I mean, for instance, like code a website by describing it right and have these results come back to you i mean google could always give you results or as long as google google's been around but this evolution from you know well websites 15 20 years ago to being able to describe it and get it actually coded and, and delivered at least sort of sort of kind of now and, and getting better i would just talk about trends i mean it just totally reeks to me of which i'm not the only one saying this reeks to me of uh it's like the first inning like it's actually happening it's making it easier i think it's heavily because people are just so innately able to communicate um and for me i mean the second trend i would i would just mention so i don't um you know eat into the whole old time right is bias and my bias is around this um layer of understanding uh communication too so actually being able to like harness our voice tone and if you think about it, like a trend magnify who we are so i get really like dodgy or, or concerned when I think about this compression of language, it's like sort of let's go faster and faster and do more and more, you know, kind of like transactional things or, or everything that I think has been necessary to lay the groundwork for where we are. I um, am helping to build it, but I certainly believe the future is trying to make this like magnification of what we do. What we do at Helios is like transparency, being able to have communication enhanced through understanding tone. I think that is a huge trend because I'm not the only one working in voice. There's a whole whole world of it, um, trying to pioneer, I think, a sort of like hybrid mentality to what happens in a world where you're eliminating interfaces and in a way making the technology more and more invisible. Gotcha. 
Your first point I really like, and and we'll cover both um, uh, around, are we at a point of inflection, kind of democratization of access to AI and AI yeah. infrastructure that usually, in, if you look at history, that has served uh, kind of where the economic value from a technology is created most, rather than if it's limited to a elite few. So love love that point. We'll definitely talk about that. Um, Jags, your, your mega trends. And, and a little bit about yourself and, and what you're building. Yeah, thank you, Barry. Uh, hey guys, uh, Jack Skandasamy, co-founder and CEO of Latent. Uh, prior to this, I ran another startup called Autostens where we had automated human hearing, listening to sound and then identifying events from it, uh, sold the company to analog devices, primarily uh, into the predictive maintenance use cases, right? Uh, my first foray into AI and uh, Literally, we were dragged by the year to go AI on the edge. Uh, latent AI is also focused similarly on AI on the edge, but more primarily building it as an infrastructure company. So my three megatrends would be AI, making AI actually work as advertised, uh, uh, making more pilots uh, be production ready, right? Uh, then the second topic is uh, data, right? Not many people talk about this, but data today, the way we've created data is for human consumption. We never intended to create data for the computer to consume, right? So that cycle needs to evolve and, and you know, to generate, right? So AI will not work without data and data needs to be in a form for this machines to to consume. Uh, I, I see uh, Leo uh, <laughs> shaking his head. So that'll be another one. Then the third trend for me is, you know, we talk about uh, um, climate, climate change. Um, we need to have a clear understanding of the carbon footprint of AI, not just training, but also inferences, right? Uh, you do training once and then you do millions and millions of inferences as you go through. How do we get a handle on that? How do we make sure, uh, you know, we're not contributing to 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 a trend that is already out of hand, right? So that would be my impact. No, thanks. Thanks, Jags. And and um, love, love those um, trends. Definitely want to cover um, the data one's a new one for me, but I see what you're saying. And it would make, maybe it'll have effect on the other one too, right? If it's more streamlined than training and inferences would be um, easy. So would love to visit. Um, Lewis, um, your mega trends and a little bit about what you're building. Yeah, I'm uh, Lewis Liu, founder and CEO of Eigen Technologies. We are a small data, no code document AI platform. So we transform uh, documents into structured usable data or to use Jags's uh, terminology, we take human ingestible data and we transform that in, in, in tra you know, translate that into machine uh, readable data, um, and and doing that in an automated fashion. Uh, and 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 for me, I think there there's sort of three big macro trends I see. Um, the the first is what I'm going to call stumbling towards, but not quite get there towards AGI. And and what I mean by by this is that you know I'm a I have a PhD in theoretical physics, and I'm actually a strong believer that consciousness has a quantum mechanical underpinning. Uh, there's plenty of great 
um, recent um, uh, studies published in, in, in journals that there is some quantum mechanical effect uh, on consciousness. I, I'm not going into that today, but I do think that in order to get to that, that true AGI, you probably need to have a marriage of quantum and AI, and that's not, not for today, maybe not even for this decade. But I do think that the prevalence of uh, all of this great work done um, and on large language models, on multimodal models, are really going to cement use cases within AI. And these use cases are probably going to be more boring than you think, right? Um, you know, I was just playing with um, ChatGPT literally last night in preparation for this call. And I think for a lot of people in the AI space, we're not that impressed, right? On one hand, it's really impressive. On the other hand, you're like, if I type in a query, it's sort of summarizing the top 10 Google search pages in, in a really nice package, right? Like, and that's one sort of common response. So I do think that there is going to be, in order to find market value and customer value out of all of these AI trends, people will need to start willing, whittling down to specific repeatable business use cases with good unit economics. Um, and the last part is more difficult than you think. So that's like, that's, that's sort of one mega trend. I'm going to call it towards and AGI, but we'll settle towards usable AI. The the the, the second mega trend, I think, it, it's sort of related in, in the same bucket as what I call, you know, the increased scrutiny about privacy and deglobalization. Right? Those are are uh, I, I find deglobalization sad. I, I feel like I'm a global citizen, but I think that is just a reality of the fact. And I do think that as you know, sovereign nations become more protective of their data. And as individuals become more protective of their data, and we recently saw this, um, uh, you know, lawsuit uh, against sort of a, a co-pilot, right? Um, and as corporations become more protective of their data, I think there's going to be much more thoughtfulness go going into designing AI products with data sort of governance um, and data providence. And I think that's just, I think that's going to be enshrined in both our political situation and, and what's going to come out of the courts. And, and if, if, even you, you even see consumers becoming increasingly skeptical of large technology and large AI. So that's sort of the second mega trend, both on a political level and a consumer level. Um, and I think on, on, on the, uh, the third major trend I, I, I see um, really is, I think, I think we've, this has been mentioned before, is, is more around climate, right? It is genuinely around, you know, how are we going to address the uncomfortable question that in a, in a hyper-digital world, compute cost is just really, really expensive, right? I, I mean, I mean, I, 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 well, at least we're not in the Bitcoin space, but, uh, you know, some of those stats about power usage for Bitcoin are, are, are sort of insane, right? And I think in, in, in the AI world, we also need to think about, you know, as we use larger and lar larger models, how is that going to impact our footprint? I do think that people will care about this more and more. And in and, and a mega theme, I call forced climate risk. As in, we, are, we don't want to think about it, but we're going to be forced to think about it. So those are the three mega trends I, I, I see. No, I love it. And love that um, the connection between quantum, that's something I dabble into, consciousness and quantum, uh, Lewis. So definitely uh, that's a topping in itself and we'd love to have a, a podcast separately. But who better to do this who's doing a startup in AI and has a PhD in um, theoretical physics? <laughs> you are the right person to kind of um, uh, look into this. Um, Ahan, um, 
getting into a little bit of fintech-y stuff. We, this was very AI heavy to start, but I know you dabble in AI as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll sit at the uh, in the middle of the Venn diagram uh, between financial services and AI, though I will raise my hand and say that I do not have a PhD in theoretical physics. And so I, like you, listener, will learn along the way. Um, in, in terms of my three trends, right, I, I wanted to break them into some things that we're seeing across the realm of finance and fintech and how what the implications are going to be on the rest of the economy, some things around how AI is going to interact with that world, and some things around how AI is going to interact with all of us, maybe outside of that world. Um, and for some quick context, um, for those that um, didn't listen to the last podcast, my name is Ahan. Uh, I lead a business called Helix, um, and we're one, of, we're one of the largest embedded finance players out in the space. So if you've ever used uh, Credit Karma or Betterment or Acorns or any of those kinds of guys, um, we power unique banking products for each of them. So my first trend is going to actually relate to what we do as a, as a day-to-day business. But for each of these, I'm going to kind of describe what's the problem that we're trying to deal with? Why does it matter? Um, what's the change? And, and what are the implications, right? So the first one will be infrastructure enabling embedded and interconnected finance, right? Well, what's the problem? Well, if you look back uh, at sort of consumer financial products and even business financial products, they've all by and large been the same. Much of the financial industry is built on this arbitrage of inefficiency. There is a consistent asymmetry of information across the entire economy to the detriment of the individuals. And for a very long time, the consumer has not really been the focus of the financial institution, right? The focus of the financial institution has been on creating loans that generate income that allows the financial institution to exist and consumers have been a cost of deposits. One of the interesting things that we've started to see over the last three to five years is infrastructure like Helix allowing companies to build these embedded financial offerings. So now it's not just, hey, you get your cookie cutter checking account. It's how do I take the intrinsics of storing money and moving money and pushing around data like Jags was talking about a second ago and embed that inside of my existing application to create something that has never existed before, to create something that in real time can communicate with the other nodes inside of the financial network. And I think the question that it raises is, one, how is that going to change the face of the types of products that we interact with? I think we're at the very beginnings of that, where, yes, you saw neobanks that are effectively just a more consumer-friendly way of looking at finance. But now, as you start to see finance overlap with insurance or finance overlap with broader retail companies or finance overlap with other non-financial products and potentially even with AI – starts to become more interesting, right? Because you start to see this world in which you don't have all these random silos. You rather have a a connected ecosystem that can talk to each other where the consumer is sitting at the center of that. It'll also be interesting to see how that changes the way that financial policymaking works. Because today you're effectively pushing and dispersing funds out into these individual silos where if you imagine a world where the economy is actually truly interconnected, right, and operating in near real time instead of operating on these legacy 40, 50-year-old systems, you can imagine a world where actually giving people the societal benefits that you want to give, especially as the nature of work changes, which we'll get to in a second, um, becomes a lot easier and a lot more interesting. So that's the first one is embedded and interconnected finance changing the face of our financial system. The second is going to go a little bit closer to the center, right, and say AI overlapping with financial services and that is, and, I'm, and Jags, I'm going to take a little bit of what you're talking about as well with regards to systematic personalization using data, especially in financial services. I think the point that Jags made around data by and large being created for human consumption is by and large true. I think one of the trends we've seen, though, in the technology space is that 
technology companies have started to leverage this data to get better personalization, right? When every person on this call hops onto Netflix, we're seeing different stuff. When we go and we search something on Amazon, we're seeing different things. And that to some extent is like this very first level of personalization. But if you go to financial services, it doesn't look like that, right? If we all walk into a top 10 bank today and we sign up for a product, it will be, I guarantee you, exactly the same. And that's for two reasons. One, because that industry has been built on legacy technology for a while and hasn't taken advantage of the same personalization capabilities that tech has. But two, there's also a complicated regulatory framework around the nature of personalization in financial services as a highly regulated industry. And so as the infrastructure changes, I think we're starting to see companies realize that the secret to engagement, the secret to sustainability, the secret to bringing down fraud actually comes down to personalization and that there is this potential massive impact on individual financial health. Because we exist in this world where the, the newest generation has less savings than ever before, when they're more cash-strapped than they've ever been before. And personalization has the potential to actually help them get closer to where they want to get to, but it also has the potential to inherently discriminate. It also has the potential to put them down the wrong path. And so there's this innate connection with regulation and responsibility that'll be really interesting to delve into over the next couple of years. So personalization will be the third, the second one. And the third one, and some folks on this call are probably far smarter than I am when it comes to this, but we've even started to start looking at this inside of Helix as an organization, but is AI changing the nature of engineering um, and, and thereby changing the nature of work. I think we're still at the very early uh, early components of this with regards to AI actually being able to holistically build applications. But today you can generate sample code using artificial intelligence, right? And effectively have that run through your QA, QE team to make sure there are no functional errors and start leveraging it. But there are a whole bunch of broader questions um, that remain unanswered. How do you think about system interconnectivity? How will that interact with and impact regulation? Who owns the uh, the data and the code that is created by these artificial systems? But if you draw the trend line through to where it looks like the space is going, as more and more code can be artificially generated, this super high premium on engineering talent will start to change. The nature of a role of an engineer may start to change, right? So it may become more about how do you ask the right questions and how do you make sure that what's coming out is appropriately built as opposed to how do you design the initial thing from the onset? Um, and seeing that interaction between humans and AI with regards to building that technology um, will be super interesting. And then seeing the thereby implications on the rest of the future of work uh, will be interesting as well. So those would be my, my three big three. Awesome. Embedded, interconnected finance, maybe intelligent finance uh -huh. as an add-on. But that's great. Thanks, Ahon, um, for that. Stephen, last but not least, um, your take. Well, I have the uh, the fortunate uh, position to, to go last, so I have a lot of uh, great material to uh, to go on here. So, and I'm going to do just that. Uh, so, I am the CEO of Beyond the Arc. Uh, for over 20 years, we have been focused on customer experience transformation, and a key way that we do that is the uh, kind of the marriage, if you will, between uh, focus on the customer along with customer insights derived from machine learning. And uh, to borrow from, uh, from JAGS, I think our goal really is to make AI actually work. And that's actually what we do in large enterprises. So working in, for example, a uh, top five bank, helping them to be able to apply uh, data science and natural language processing to understand uh, customer complaints and be able to identify uh, emerging trends 
from millions of touch points from uh, customer service emails to uh, phone transcripts and what have you. So we're, make, we're, we're driving this implementation of AI. Also working with a, a large legacy industrial company, you know, it's got 140 years of history making industrial products and now services, you know, related to that. But also to the point, the data that they have is was created for managing the business. So they have a lot of data for reports. They have a lot of data for um, for business intelligence graphs and charts, but they don't actually have the data to consume for machine learning and AI, right? And I think that that is what that is what. Uh, beyond the arc is about, but I think that that's really what AI is now about. And so I'd say sort of the first trend that I see for AI today is for the first time in in now maybe 40 years of the first discussions of AI, but at least in the last 10, capturing business value from AI becomes a practical reality for companies, right? Like that is that is that is doable now. Uh, and I and I think that the key thing, and and I think Lewis said. The use cases are going to be boring. <laughs> it's not going to be exciting stuff, but it is going to be, you know, we're seeing sort of the subtrends underneath that, you know, back office automation. Um, we've done a lot of querying of government databases to get regulatory filings to be able to identify and extract key facts from regulatory filings. You know, so these are things that are just sort of the practical nuts and bolts. That's what I see sort of evolving kind of on an on a AI, AI side. I think that also, you know, we do a lot of work and my vantage point is within financial services. And so I think that we've seen the power of financial services to transform customer experience. And I think that the second major trend there um, is is along the lines of what, what Aon was talking about. I'll, I'll talk about it in terms of sort of the, the future of payments and, and really sort of the fact that the future of payments is today uh, and it's embedded. Uh, and I'll say and it's real time. Right. And I think that that's the real game changer is that there's a variety of different use cases. And where we've been focusing from a customer experience perspective is in the impact of real time payments on improving customers financial wellness. Um, so what does that mean? And what that really means is the millions of people living, they don't show, they don't budget well, they're living paycheck to paycheck, they're spending more than they have. And with those extra control of having real-time payments, we think that, that could really be a significant um, impact in terms of improving sort of the uh, sort of the health and well-being of, of people generally. You know, and then the last piece I'll mention is around uh, the impact of technology trends on marketing. Uh, and so, as you may know, we're sort of moving to a a world where. Uh, online advertisers are not going to be able to track your every move across the internet, right? And so there's going to be that. That's that's a fantastic thing for uh, increased privacy. Um, that's a horrible thing for marketing effectiveness, right? So so what does that lead to? We think that there's a connection with machine learning and AI and applying machine learning techniques to better understand uh, customer personas, segmentation, and and truly sort of like lookalike modeling. As an alternative to today's, you know, today's uh, world based on based on cookies, so we see a lot of impact of you know AI and technology across not only financial services but more broadly across the entire customer experience and marketing.
Awesome. Thank you, Stephen. On the marketing thing, I just read in preparation for the podcast, I think it was on the Sequoia uh, paper, uh, Sequoia Ventures, that um, by 2030, they expect influencers and all to be replaced fully uh, by by um, AI. And so that would impact how marketing happens. But uh, overall, I took a lot of notes. This all, each of the, like the two page notes, each bullet item is, I think, a show in itself. But we're trying to condense for our audience to kind of get a sneak peek. So I appreciate you guys kind of keeping it to that two to three megatrends. And one of the themes that came out is AGI. And I, I know a lot of my audience definitely are informed about this, but maybe if we can start with some foundations, right? What is AGI, right? And we could try to define it while we're talking about it. And how do we know what what traits, right? Is it kind of with consciousness as, as Lewis pointed out or, or other things or is generative AI like ChatGPT almost there? Um, so can we have like an open discussion on, on what is AGI? When will we know um, that we have it? And, and then kind of get maybe after that to focus on what Jags and Steven talked about, right? How to make it work at a, as an abstract concept. It's kind of very cool to debate and talk, but in application economic value that some people bought about. So kind of keep it open. Don't talk over each other, but let's, let's go. Who wants to go first in defining AGI and the traits? I, I, I'll go. I, I, I think... You know, one of the first attempts to define AGI was Alan Turing's Turing test, right? Um, which I, I think everyone who listens to this podcast would know. You know, if you can't tell the difference between a machine and a human, the machine is can, can be considered intelligent. And and now actually we see that a lot of these large language models, not just ChatGPT, but many other large language models, come very close to being able to pass the Turing test. Um, but yeah, you know, I do not think that they're even close to being. Um, sentient or AG, towards AGI. So, so therefore, we we really need to find some kind of other functional way of determining what is AGI. And 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 I'm not I'm not here to sort of debate about you know what are those definitions, but I I, I do say that um, one of the reasons why I think we are still so far away from it is the with ChatGPT can be can generate. I actually just asked it to. Um, Tell me a story about um, Luke Skywalker versus Captain Picard and generate something really cool. It sort of made sense. It's unable to hold on to additional context and it's unable to actually perform that kind of specific logical reasoning. And and you know and I think from a general AGI perspective, it needs to. I think we need to have a broken down list of very specific functional things that the AI needs to do. And I think, I think, so we need to probably move away from just being able to be a chatbot to something that's far more sort of cognitively, cognitive strength based. Gotcha. Like with context. Um, others? I come at this from a funny, I'll put a funny angle on it because I always think to myself without having uh, decades of experience in this or something, right, is there's so much that computing and then bleeding the edge of, you know, what we're going to say is AI or AGI uh, that we can't do. So there's countless things machines are now doing all the time that are pushing this boundary of right now you can converse with them, but they're not conversing quite to our level, we think, right? I I, I come at it from uh, the hedge fund world, right? I think, you know, from my background, what we do at Helios is supporting data intelligence through voice tone for hedge funds is these machines are 
now making decisions and have been like quant hedge funds dominate the space uh, to the tune of you know 16 billion made last year on decision making from data that is you know war one uh, for instance one data point in of a model that's got you know 250 500 different uh, disparate data sources to understand the markets in real time and trade on them so it certainly doesn't directly answer what is the definition of AGI but I think there is, uh, from my perspective, when I see these, it continually blows my mind, right, for the world of, of hedge funds that this is already consuming it. So so is that AI? Is it general? It's not conversational. But these decisions are hundreds of orders, you know, magnitudes more than anything we could ever do, right? These are gotcha. infinitely yeah. powerful. Yeah, <laughs> high, high impact, making very critical decisions. Yeah, go go ahead. Who was trying to get in? From a different perspective, right? You see, when I look at the whole AI world, you see a lot of these terms, I mean, first of all, don't have a formal definition, but they've been going on for a long time. Uh, during my PhD days, like back, you know, in Japan, Berkeley and a few others, you know, like 20 years plus ago, you now we had this AI or equivalent. We have like, you know, responsible AI, displayable AI, trustworthy AI. So it's the same terms that basically followed us for the last 20, 25 years, right? And probably will will keep going. But at the end of the day, I think an abstract definition is really, uh, you know, to, to, to try to frame it in terms of problems that human beings can basically solve, right? Uh, but I think, I think see, it's probably better to, to approach this whole notion from the perspective of what are the key challenges that we see with AI today, right? I, I would like to go back to maybe the top three or four, really, that I see. Uh, I mean, and especially over the last, you know, 15, 20 years, right? I think one of them is really uh, the heavy focus on uh, statistical AI, numerical AI. And, and, and the big question today, I mean, is it hitting a limit, right? Do we need to combine all this deep learning and, you know, different ways of doing supervised or, 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 or even reinforcement learning and to some extent, like, you know, uh, maybe unsupervised learning with other things like possibilistic reasoning, probabilistic reasoning, uh, different types of logic that came from, like, you know, from different uh, expert system type techniques. So that for me is key because, you know, the, 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 there is this whole theme, which is to get to AGI, we have to basically shift direction and augment the techniques we have today with other ways of uh, uh, approaching AI, right? And I listed some of them. So that's one. A second will be, you know, the cost of of doing all of this. Uh, you know, anyone who's done any real, like, you know, work in AI, um, basically, like, you know, we'll, we'll realize that, you know, it is expensive, uh, which basically, like, you know, lead to the point of, uh, you know, only few can do it. Look at, you know, this whole, uh, this whole uh, generative AI, for example, today, you really, like, find five, six key companies, like large ones, with all the costs, you know, of the cloud, you know, handled and all of that. And pretty much everyone else will, will, will fall behind, right? The third key problem with AI that I see, which plays into the AGI equation, is really, you know, how can AI, you know, deal with uh, with things like imprecise data, incomplete data, uncertain data, right? Um, you know, bias in data, ethics in data. And, and that's probably the third key problem that, uh, that one has to address. So for me, defining AGI is mostly from the perspective of addressing these challenges. And the conclusion of that, uh, and I think that's probably a theme overall, is, uh, you know, it's been the case again for 20 years, is... Uh, you know, we always like for promise with AI, uh, but you know, I can say like you know the, the hard problem that AI did not solve a while back, they're still not solved with AI today, right? 
so I, I think I think one has to put some some reality into all this expectation of of having basically okay. everything solved with AI within a short time frame and so on. Okay. So that's another way to look at it. Yeah. So kind of a bottoms up approach of defining AGI, a top down approach like functional and problem domain. Maybe the the magic happens when you do both. Jags, you were trying to get in. Yeah, so you know, usually when we compare a machine, we're trying to compare it with the human intelligence, right? So you know, to give a simple example, when you when you teach a child what a fire is, right? You can show the child uh, a candle or a stove, right? Like a gas stove or something that the fire is burning. The moment they see that, either they, they touch it or they feel it, and you tell tell them that's a fire. You don't have to show all instances of fire to the child for them to learn about fire, right? They've learned it, right? They can identify a candle, they can identify a paper burning, they can identify a wood burning, and they know that it is all fire. That's how we learned it, right? As humans, as we as we grew up, we knew that and it it it, it ingrained in ourselves. If you unpack that, right, there was multiple domain dimensions to that learning process. For a machine to learn that way, to achieve that, we don't have enough computing power or we haven't unlocked, as, as Louis was talking about, that, that quantum uh, uh, mechanical aspect that, that comes with that. I think all of that needs to come together for us to achieve that AGI status. And even when it comes to that, the human intelligence will continue to surpass, continue to improve and increase the machine will have difficulty catching up because we are the ones that are creating that machine okay right? beautiful so, it, it's it's a great point so is it a representation problem like you brought up about the data not from machine or is it just a compute bandwidth problem or is it a combination i would say it's a combination of all and more okay right uh, we create with what we can imagine you know, when you put data points together, when you have data that we don't know the connections, the machine is able to identify those connections and come up. It is not beyond our imagination. It is there. It's just that we don't have the computing bandwidth to sit and analyze because we'll get tired looking for all those patterns, right? The machine is able to do it easily, right? So it's a combination of data, the compute power, and our yeah. imagination along with that to create that. Just to sort of summarize this a little bit, and not to get too philosophical here, I, I think it really is, is a question around the physics of consciousness or the physics of creativity. And what I mean by this is that in theory, right, a language model or some kind of AI model large enough to encompass the entire internet, e.g. GPT-3, GPT-4 maybe coming out, should theoretically have enough emergent properties to be considered intelligent, right? But I don't think it, it will. So it's not, so is it, so it's like, if I continue adding layers and layers of complexity and data, and I'm still not achieving, you know, AGI, right? And, and by the way, like GPT-3 has seen way more text and way more data than any human could ever achieve in a lifetime. There's got to be some other, I call it physics, um, mechanism um, that enables creativity, true creativity enables true consciousness. And, and maybe that's quantum, maybe that's something else. But I think there is a question around is pure statistical emergent properties, is that enough to create AGI? Doesn't seem to be. 
Yeah, we need something like Schrodinger's, uh, right? Which is more not statistical, but definitive. But but great point. I, I love the philosophical aspects. Well, and, I, I would go sort of the other direction and say, and does it matter, right? So does it matter that 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 perhaps computers can't think like a human? Well, you know what? There's problems that humans can't solve. And I'll give you I'll give you two two ones that come off the top of my head. Let's look at the predictive maintenance use case, right? None of us here can look at a machine and understand when it's going to break down. We've been doing work in retention and churn. I can't look at, at customer relationships and know who's going to leave and when. But those are things where the powerful math really can make a difference, right? So, so we're set, so we so there's this idealized view of the promised land of like, oh, we have to get to this AGI level before any of this makes sense. And I think there's tremendous value today and along the way, and we may never even make it to the promised land, but there's still there there's still actions we can take now. That uh, that's sort of how I see I, this I, bigger this bigger picture. I I completely agree. I I think that most of the use cases that are going to be coming out that's going to make people a lot of money and have a lot of impact are going to be really boring, and you know just it's just about sheer computing scale, uh, and uh, ability to do complex things in a predictable way. Gotcha. No, love, love the discussion. So be it when it happens or be it when we're tackling problems, as Stephen very articulately pointed out, what do you think the form factor will be, right? And is it going to be this behemoth kind of digital intelligence? I was reading that book. Um, I forget the author, I should uh, remember. Um, or is it kind of these piecemeal? Or is it in the edge like Jags is talking about? So what, like the 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 next generation of a, AGI or whatever trending towards AGI? What do you think the form factor will be? So Open I have coined a term called adaptive AI. Right, this is, this is something that that we coined at Latent AI, and we 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 talked about it, and and we continue to to build around it. Right. Um, today we talk about AI inference being done at the AI at the edge or AI in the cloud. But everybody forgets about the network in between, right? I, you know, uh, economists coined this term very famously, right? Like data is a new oil. So with that new oil, I drew a parallel from the oil distillation towers. You guys remember your chemistry lessons from crude oil heating up and going through the distillation tower. So I drew a parallel from that and thinking like, Instead of treating the network as a dump pipe, the network actually has a lot of computing to offer along the way. How do you define and build the right type of intelligence along that network? So you extract and you use that as a filter to get the right intelligence extracted as the data passes through and send, sending only the signals all the way up to wherever it needs to go. Uh, um, we did an example here, right? Like. Uh, um, you know, if you have your uh, doorbell camera today, it's it's motion sensor activated. Anything that moves in front of it, you get an alert. We did uh, this work with a large telco in the US. We built a human detection model to run on the doorbell on four bit processor, a human non-human detection running at 80 kilobits, double A battery for two years, right? Always on. It detects only whether there's a human or not human. Once a human is identified, then you pass that image to the next layer of compute. In this telco's case, it was the mech environment where you're doing facial recognition. Is that Paddy? Is that Jags? Is that Louis at the door? Do they have uh, permission to enter, right? You do that because it's a little bit compute intensive. Let's say the face is not identified. 
you can pass that image up to the next layer of compute. This could be the cloud instance where you do an analysis of the uniform segmentation and figure out, okay, is that a UPS uniform? Is that a FedEx or uh, an Amazon delivery person at the door? Am I expecting a delivery? Should I open the door? That kind of logic can be run at a, at a little bit more deeper computing yeah. power. So gotcha. think about this. It is how AI will evolve. There is no uh, uh, binary here. This is, there is no either or. It is all in encompassing. And there will be like, you know, we are uh, working on some oil and gas use cases, right? Um, undersea, uh, a customer of ours is using a drone submarine to do pipeline inspections, to look for anomalies. Think about the impact to the climate if uh, a pipeline is, is about to burst and you send in something to record the video, take the video up, put it up onto the cloud, process it. Three days later, you find out there is some issue and send a diver to go fix it. If the pipe bursts, you, 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 you know, you're going to face a lot of losses there, right? But with, with the technology like AI running on the edge, as soon as you detect, you can send in a, a notification and somebody can immediately go fix that. Gotcha. Jax, I, I completely agree with you that um, the, the form factor is going to be very layered, right? I mean, you know, we, we sort of take a very similar approach, right? We, we um, you know, we, we process complex documents, right? If you throw a, you know, 300-page loan document to into chat GPT or GPT-3, you're going to spend more money on compute power than a Cravath lawyer. Um, and, but the way to do it is that you need to, you, you need to actually se segment down using different types of models from lightweight probabilistic models all the way through to large language models in certain areas or or call a multimodal um, you know, image recognition model or machine vision model to be able to actually compute com complete these tasks. And 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 so and and I think unit economics suddenly becomes really important. I think it's been estimated that OpenAI spends 60 cents to a dollar per query. I mean, if, if Google did that on a search engines, it would it would go bankrupt in a day, right? So 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 I think there is we need there is definitely about a multi multi-form form factor when it comes to building these AI applications. Gotcha. And uh, we should talk about that optimization, but maybe I want to go into um, use cases a little bit and get Ahan others also in the discussion. So in, in my research, I saw obviously there's text to text, uh, especially if you take in uh, ChatGPT and Stable Diffusion, some of the big players or the big movements uh, that are happening, text to image or uh, generating image, text to 3D, there's image to text as well. There are a few few flavors of that, right? contextualizing all that obviously that that has general application copywriting and 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 sales and marketing or creative writing and that kind of stuff but so let's zoom in on financial services if 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 we can um and see where some of these applications i know jags you you talked about some oil and natural gas that's that's a lovely example right especially of the edge ability and huge implications and steven you also talked about some industrial application so is the application more industrial what are some of the applications in financial services maybe ahan and lewis you, i know you're working with clients there maybe you want to start start that off on use cases for sure. So, I mean, I think we just started by talking about how the form factor is this multi-layered 
approach. And I think honestly, use cases are the exact same, where if you look at from every layer down from the individual consumer to the company building for them, to the infrastructure behind the company, to the way that company builds the infrastructure, every layer of that has practical today usable use cases for AI. And so what I wanted to do is quickly maybe dive into each of those layers and give one or two examples. So you can kind of get an understanding. At the consumer level, and we talked about this a little bit from a mega trends perspective, what are things that AI today is really good at? AI is really good at pattern recognition. AI is really good typically at predictive analytics in a way that humans cannot do. Um, AI, if you give it a, a framework within which to operate, can be good at things like conversational dynamics. So, if you're Stephen, to your customer service, um, uh, customer service aspect of financial services a lot of tier one customer service can be automated, right? And so when you think about, okay, I am an individual using a financial services product. What are some practical, real use cases for AI? I think there's one suite that will be around AI-based pattern analysis, personalization, and really sort of uh, behavioral nudges, if you will, right? Where today, like we were talking about, millions and millions of people are living paycheck to paycheck, Millions of Americans and people across the globe struggle with savings. People struggle with knowing when to make the right types of financial decisions. And ultimately, if you break down those decisions, they are just a series of understanding the actions that you are taking, what is happening broadly inside of your lives, and to some extent, a a predefined set of best practices as agreed upon between you and, let's say, the decision entity, right? And so we're starting to see this, and we have a customer today that applies AI to help nudge consumers towards the goals that they themselves set, right? Because there's this inherent balance where as an individual, I don't want a system dictating everything that I do day in, day out, but I do want something that's going to help me get to where I know that I want to go with things that I know that I'm comfortable with. And so I think you'll see one category there at the consumer level. You'll see one category around automating tier one customer service and manual review type activity. So as Lewis mentioned, document verification is a part of a standard KYC flow, for example. you If you go through the happy path, great. If you don't go through the happy path, now you have to submit your driver's license. Now you have to submit some kind of existing statement that shows where you're from. And as Jags would put it, that data is not yet machine consumable. So do you really want to go pay some rep 5 to $10 to go and read that document? No, especially if a system like Lewis's companies can go through, read that data, and give it in a way that's easily ingestible and that regulators are comfortable with. And so you'll start to see some of those manual tasks to get automated away. And in the context of customer service, you know, typically, and this is kind of shocking, somewhere between 60 to 80% of tier one customer service calls for a lot of financial institutions are stupid, basic questions. Like what's my account balance, right? When, when did my last transaction come in? And those are things that are very easy to train uh, chatbots. And even today, if you can go see things like Glio, which we use across the Q2 ecosystem, which are AI-based chatbots, right? That will replace that first tier of service and reserve human interaction for the more complex, more nuanced things that today humans can do that maybe machines cannot. So let's go one level up from the consumer and let's go to, okay, what about the business that's trying to serve that consumer? Well, that, uh, that uh, business effectively has to figure out How am I going to help my consumers grow their financial health? And at the same time, how am I going to predict and stop fraud in its tracks? Because fraud can be one of the biggest areas that I'm going to lose money as a business that's powering financial services. 
Well, you can do that with AI, right? Because AI can effectively analyze patterns and in many cases predict where some of these patterns are going to occur. So you can proactively write rules that will only impact those that would be more likely to enact fraud versus those that would be less likely. Now, there's a regulatory implication there, but I won't dive way too deep. Um, so that's just one example at this sort of company level. You go to the infrastructure level. And as I was talking about, things like how are you creating new infrastructure? Well, if you can now generate code, and we started doing some basic pilots with this, not necessarily pushing direct into prod as we're still trying to be careful as to how we leverage it. But what we found is actually in a lot of use cases, you can dramatically speed up the time it takes for you to build something by using something like artificial intelligence to build some basic components like jobs or, or building out data pipelines internally, as long as you have the appropriate QA and QE procedures and the appropriate controls at every layer of the process. And, and so the short answer is, those are just some use cases. You go outside of financial services and you'll see those pattern recognition use cases and everything from the oil and gas pipelines that we were talking about to cancer recognition in biology to genetic uh, sort of genome analysis. And I think those use cases are by and large endless, but it comes down to where is their value in understanding a pattern? Where is their value in being able to predict where something is going, like the hedge fund world, is, as you know, Sean was talking about a moment ago? And where can those things be done more systematically using pure compute power without requiring some of the uh, quantum mechanical implications that Lewis was talking about a moment ago? Well, awesome. I think that what and anyone will tell you is that it's not about the model. It's about the action that you take with the model. And I think that that's what's really uh, interesting in the financial services side, you know, particularly now when you start talking about new new capabilities like in payments, like in embedded banking, right? It's, there's now the ability to have those model insights drive all kinds of actions that weren't that weren't possible before. So it really is that it's the insights plus new new avenues for action. And the gotcha. thing that people are going to have to figure out is how do you explain that to a regulator? Right. How does a regulator get comfortable with the systemic, the systemic way in which you will make actions in a way that is non-discriminatory and non-biased when in some cases you are generating uh, net new actions based off of inherent logic? And that's where the sort of lag between regulators understanding and the growth of AI will be interesting because financial services obviously is so highly regulated. Right. And that was great, meaning. Ahan, you did a great job, right? The, the, the all kind of the buckets of use cases, so to speak, right? The patterns, the prediction, and the contextual kind of, and each will kind of grow. There's a spectrum, right? They're at some current state. They maybe they'll grow. Um, if there's anyone, anyone wants to add anything? I, I, I just wanted to add this one thing, right? Like uh, based on what uh, Ahan and, and uh, Steve talked about, AI for me is not artificial intelligence, it's augmented intelligence. Yes. It is a tool to help humans make better decisions. That's all. So, you know, gotcha. what an AI produces is never uh, uh, results, right? It is producing confidence-based scores. It's doing predictions, right? We got to use that as predictions to 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 inform how we make decisions. That's all. Yeah. So it has broad application to a financial planner, like a wealth manager, a doctor, a physician, and and lawyers, right? So it has um, that that aspect can be like even the pilot, right? The GitHub pilot, um, which is an AI to generate code. I think a developer can use it. It can't just rely on it, but can use it to. I think Ahan, you you talked about that earlier that you're looking into it. Um, so I want to move on. I think it's a good summary, good discussion on use cases. 
Um, I think, Sean, um, your bias definitely comes into that pattern bucket, so to speak. And it looks like you've done some cool work at your company on around recognizing that in voice tone. That's pretty cool. I'll have to check it out, especially it's so impactful in the hedge fund industry. Um, I want to move on to kind of the optimization um, side of things, right? Um, so several of you talked about kind of the impact on climate, the carbon footprint as compute. I think somebody's talked about how much energy it costs. Um, so optimization becomes not just a good thing to do, but it's an imperative for this explosion, this Cambrian explosion to happen. So I, I know Jags, you're kind of working on it, kind of specifically building IP around that. Maybe you can kick us off and Riyadh maybe get you on the conversation. You laid out some things that can be done kind of at the horizontal level. And let's have an open discussion around optimization, um, carbon footprint, the entire kind of the climate or sustainability of this Cambrian explosion of AI. Jags. Absolutely, right. So, thanks, Perry. Um you know, the way I, I did my fundraising, right, my my seed round, um, I took my iPhone out, called Siri, asked for time, and then put the phone on airplane mode, called Siri up, and asked for time again. The answer that came back was like, sorry, you're not connected to the internet. So it was a simple query, and the resource that I was looking for was available locally on Dubai, right? And I, I just showcased, this was four years ago, right? Four and a half years ago when I showcased this, um, saying that yes, AI is running, it's running in the cloud and it's costing you know, the hops that it takes and uh, uh, um, all the way it goes. So we did an experiment and, and we came up with this, right? Like every query that you send out using a voice UI to get answers back, the equivalent of a small, uh, um, battery, uh, you know, the coin cell gets depleted. Think wow. about the, the, the that that's for every query. That was your that's your estimate. Every query, every query. Wow, yes. that's because that's phenomenal. And by the way, that was brilliant to use that in your fundraising. Right, it makes the case for the edge AI like nothing else. No better deck than just showing that. But go on, go on, um, Jax. So so with that. Then comes data privacy, right? Privacy becomes an issue, but primarily uh, sending all the data over burns so much power going through, right? And we have noticed that GPUs where you, you know, training is one side, you, you, you have to use heavy amounts of GPU to, to train for your model, but then that could be like, a one-time large investment, and then you're doing incremental training from there on, which may not be as, as expensive. But the inference side, people have completely missed on that. And finally, they're catching on to that, is that inference is where your expense is going to be, right? This is where your OPEX is going to hit you really, really bad when you're running it on the cloud. And at the same time, there are certain use cases that cannot be done, that cannot be deployed without a form factor that is close, that is optimized and close to the data. Like this is what we uh, uh, we profess and we talk to our customers is that the ADC, analog to digital conversion, where it happens is closer to the data. 
and you need AI capabilities closer to that ADC. Right? Gotcha. Like the defense, defense use cases, oil and natural gas use case comes to mind. Those are, you have exactly. to do it on the spot, but keep going. Yeah. And, and, and retail as well, right? So right. those type of use cases need to, need to happen there. Then, then you, you start to think about, okay, if, if I put it there, what are my implications in terms of, am I getting the right results from this? Am I, you know, am I doing the right things or am I getting the right predictions, right? That's where like the customers are like, oh, I, I want to, the, the instant reaction would be like, I'm going to sweep all of this back up and then I can put it into my cloud and then I can, you know, go back to it whenever I want to, right? We did another analysis and we interviewed several CIOs um, and their VP infrastructures and stuff, right? Like, 97% of data collected into the cloud never gets touched ever again. Wow. Right? Can you believe that, right? It's all, uh, uh, we are all, uh, what is the, the, the famous show where people collect junk and keep it in their houses? Orders. Never get orders, right? We yeah. are digital holders in the enterprise. Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, so that's that's like, you know, Big data okay. has, you know, sort of, uh, there's been kind of the downside of big data. People have sort of a mistaken impression that more data results in better models, right? And it's not, it's not more data, it's the right data. And, and, the, and, and then you, you just the issues of dealing with the, just the volume of data, it's not a surprise because it's just, it becomes that much, I mean, the, 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 the difficulty of working with that much data, particularly to build predictive models, huge compute resources, huge energy consumption, you know, and, and I was just going to add, not once have we just sat down, created, quote unquote, a model and then trained it, right? I mean, we're iterating on lots of different models, lots of different pulls of the data. And Jack, that's all consuming huge, you know, compute and, and storage resources in the cloud, right? That's hugely energy consuming every step of that prototyping uh, journey. So no, wonderful, Stephen. And and so Jags, just to kind of get, get your kind of button it up a little bit. So the distributed inferencing basically so the model that you build on this big data, they need to be optimized or changed or adapted to a edge computing environment, so to speak, and access. So that's kind of maybe that's some of the IP you are building. Okay, you're nodding. Um, so Riyadh, uh, besides kind of distributed inferencing, kind of getting this layer with kind of intelligence in the edge, what other techniques are going on in the kind of the AI think tank research communities that are looking at this optimization at, at large? Well, the, the whole the whole question of like energy consumption is obviously a huge question, right? Uh, I mean, there's a direct correlation between AI and data and then data and data centers. Uh, I've worked on a number of data centers over the last few years. Basically, some of them are in the 150, 200 megawatts each, right? At scale in, in multiple countries. You take Ireland, for example, I think, I think, I don't have the exact number, but like 15 to 16% of the energy consumption is data center consumption, right? So, so clearly the question of how to optimize, you know, energy uh, is key, right? There are three ways to look at it with an AI context that I'm seeing today happening, right? The first one is a direct optimization. Basically, you build your data centers 
uh, more efficient, right? I mean, different type of GPUs and semiconductors and, and green energy. And, and that's what the hyperscalers are primarily doing in different parts of the world. That's the first one. The second one is sort of an indirect optimization where they will compare, you know, how much energy you will be using by using these clouds and data centers versus if you were just like private clouds or, or different ways of like storing uh, the data, computes and, and, and communication, right? The third one is really, uh, you know, playing with the, with the hierarchy, the layering of AI, the, uh, you know, all this edge and different type of algos on, 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 on subsets of data, different type of inferences. So you see a lot of that too, right? Uh, so I think, you know, at the macro level, um, you know, pretty much any like major country in the world today, uh, the big question comes in terms of like energy consumption of data centers. Uh, quite a bit of what runs there has to do with AI or at least storing data or, or compute and so on. And I, I think you will see these three directions being taken, right? Uh, in order, I think probably the first one, then, then, then all this optimization of like hierarchy of data centers as the second one. And the third one is mostly indirect, like uh, optimization that we're seeing. So that, yeah. that that's at the macro level. Yeah, I think that's a good good kind of set of advice. But if you have anything else, so say a bank executive is listening, and Ahan, he, he has advice too, but he can take the advice as well. Has a lot of AI initiatives. Um, Ahan's not in a bank, but kind of serves banks. But he's building infrastructure that's used by the bank. So what should they be aware of if they're kind of spawning off all these AI projects, right? The cost, the energy, obviously you need talent, but what what other things should they be kind of looking in or plugging into so that they are aware that it's good kind of uh, I think explode. it goes back to the form factor question you had before, right? You look at the form factor, in my opinion, at least having seen AI systems for a while, it's pretty much the same type of architectures, but you know, you see, you need compute, you need storage, you need communication, you need like, you know, many other things. You need cybersecurity, you need, but basically each one of these components is evolving, right? We talked about cybersecurity at the beginning. Uh, you know, he has to worry about, uh, you know, all this like quantum computers come in, breaking, you know, standard PKI, right? You know, with RSA and, and, and whatever else, right? So he has to worry about that. He has to worry about, uh, you know, for example, we talked about like, uh, communication systems, you know, how they're evolving and how he has to optimize them for his AI use cases. So I think the way to look at it, and at the end of the day, you know, AI basically is a framework really with multiple things uh, within it. And we listed some of them. Each one of them is evolving with its own roadmap. So that CEO or CIO or CFO, he has to basically have a handle on pretty much each one of the components and their evolution to basically have a good handle of its uh, or of like its AI problems over time. Gotcha. And Sean, to just get you in the conversation and kind of button this thread up and moving on to, I think we have a few more minutes left. I'd like to tackle the cybersecurity and space real quick before we wrap up. Um, uh, how, so you're taking problems and working in the Wall Street and working with hedge funds and stuff. Has that come up or you're still at a scale that kind of the consumption and the explosions not so much of an issue? Yeah, I'll say two things to answer yours directly. For us as a company, so we don't do a lot of inferences, right? We do a lot of training and our inferences are on a small set of observations from calls. So we actually don't have really this huge um, uh, issue, right? Real time. We have a beta product that could do inferences on the fly, which actually one of the reasons we've held back on it is actually what Jag said. There is uh, implications there. So I think from the startup lens, from my lens, that you know that's sort of a, a practical answer. Something I would mention, which is now 
piggybacking off of what everyone just said is ESG. It's environmental, social, and governance, right, in the space for the hedge funds we you know work with and basically anyone buy side. That um, investment for those you know companies that are basically elevating and more mature in this you know either environmental, social, or governance layer to their company that ties in, I think, directly to the more macro, wider, you know, sort of like larger organization conversation we're having, which is if you're investing in AI, right, certainly costs like bottom line costs and your operating expenses is there. But if you're intelligent around it, now you're being seen as a leader that, of course, your costs are controlled, but that now is a bright spot for the company. So we do think about that a lot because we're asked, is our data a lens into the governance, right? If you understand the CEOs and CFOs tone and certainty into the future from our data, right? There, there's um, a lot of overlap, but I think, yeah, to our conversation, I just add that in, right? Like if you're a CTO and you're very, you know, systematic and you're thinking about it from not only your cost, but actually your, your strategy, I mean, it's gotta be, and is a major advantage to um, basically what investors see you as, you know, investability. Gotcha. So we talked quite a bit over an hour about AI. We covered a lot of ground, obviously a lot of ground we didn't cover, but I think we, the, I think the group did a great job in tackling all the big moving pieces in AI. Definitely one of the big trends in 2023. But in the introduction, we talked about some others. So let's kind of visit them briefly in the time that we have left. So one of them was kind of cybersecurity and kind of how quantum computing can kind of address that or crack it. I think Riyadh, you brought it up, maybe kind of tackle that. If, if someone wants to just introduce kind of quantum computing and how that's different from the computing we have. I can maybe do that very briefly, right? I mean, like in, in, in a couple of minutes, right? I mean, quantum physics goes back to Bohr and Planck and Einstein and so on. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, you're dealing with qubits and not bits, right? And, you know, it gives you like, you know, ways of... Uh, you know, doing things with uh, superposition entrenchment. So you can, I mean, it, it, conceptually, it's like if you're parallelizing a lot more, right? And and through that, you can solve like you know uh, uh, more complex problems versus existing uh, and today's like you know uh, bit-based like computing and so on, right? But I think quantum overall, there are three things going on, right? There is the quantum compute within computer with more qubits and you know, like, you know, more reliability and so on. You have the quantum communication, which like shipping information with quantum characteristics, you know, through that, right? And you have the quantum uh, security, right? I think, obviously, the first one is moving quite nicely, the roadmaps of the big companies and, and startups and so on. Like, you know, we're getting to hundreds of qubits today. Um, so that that's happening. Applications are taking time to materialize, you know, because because it takes time and because, you know, I think we've been a bit too optimistic and it takes effort and, and you know, and, and investments and so on, but it's going in that direction. I don't see that short term as far as having these uh, computers, uh, quantum computers, I mean, doing a lot of what we we, we, we want to do, right? I think the, the action is more on the uh, the security and cybersecurity. Uh, obviously, it's, it's fundamental, even for AI and, you know, cyber will be like very relevant as well. So the key question there is really, um, you know, when will quantum computers be able to break, um, you know, classical, uh, you know, encryption with, uh, you know, with RSA and ECC and AES and all of these algorithms, right? And, the, you know, and, and there's a theory around that short algorithm saying it takes this many qubits to break this encryption with this length of key, right? And, and, and that's the fundamental problem, like, you know, that, that, that is scaring everyone. 
Uh, you know, there were assumptions as far as how long it will take to break it. And you know, that th there are more and more inputs that it may take like a shorter time. Actually, there was a paper out uh, last month that sort of scared pretty much everyone, you know, and the paper's thesis is like, you know, there are ways of like handling uh, qubits in, in a quantum computer will break this like, you know, existing, you know, um, you know, uh, cybersecurity like in a way more easily. So I think I think that was driving, basically, you see that government, like US government, for example, I think as December of last year, I mean, that there was an order for all government entities to basically move to a quantum resistant, um, you know, like, you know, algorithms. I mean, NIST, the standard organization selected for algorithms, uh, you know, that are supposedly, uh, you know, going to be like resistant and will be used. Uh, and then you have the whole theme of like, you know, basically building security with quantum itself, which we call quantum key distribution and quantum number generation. So I, I think that's an interesting theme because it, it's multidimensional. It's the compute, it's the security, and it's the communication, right? And okay. and it, 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 it yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a if I chain the existential question, right? So we're kind of wondering when will AI be able to do what humans do, or when they will think and feel and have consciousness, but uh, the computers will. But then quantum introducing kind of a chain um, link. When will some other computers kind of disrupt what our current computers can do, and how will that change? Obviously, the encryption and and, and it has implications. Distributed ledger or blockchain or Bitcoin technology because that relies on um, encryption. So obviously, a huge, huge impact or potential huge impact. Um, others um, on quantum computing and impact in financial services. Do you see that discussions happening? Um, any, yeah. Anything you'd like to add? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the first piece of it, uh, Rian was just hitting on, which is, I think you're starting to see proactive protocol changes and things like the NIST cybersecurity protocol, which have become by and large a standard across uh, across financial services. You're like, typically when you put on your cybersecurity hat, you're thinking about a defense in depth strategy, right? Where ultimately you are kind of as weak as your weakest layer. Um, and as you think about, okay, what are the implications of quantum computing on the, the threat to each of these different layers? You kind of have to consider them independently. And I, I think it's a couple of things, right? One is how do you proactively start leveraging some of the algorithms which are called quantum resistant, I mean, TBD, right? Um, and such that were, were that threat to appear, you're as prepared as you effectively can be. I think the second part of it, though, um, just kind of putting your short-term practical hat on is saying, what is the most profitable piece of this ecosystem to break, right? Because the reality today of quantum computing is much like deep AI. It is extremely expensive, right? And the practical applications today that you're seeing in the market of quantum computing are against very select use cases. And so if you put on your bad actor hat and you say, it is going to be extremely expensive for me to leverage this, at least today. And that will change over time as quantum computing becomes more and more feasible and also more and more at scale. But today, when it is exceptionally expensive, in order for my attack to make sense, the amount that I stand to gain by actually breaking through this system has to be worth the amount that I have to spend to try, right? And so when you're doing a, an intrinsic systems analysis to say, what parts of my systems might a bad actor be most motivated to break into? You kind of have to put on your bad actor hat and say, what could I maximize to get as much value as possible? 
And that's where things like cryptocurrency become kind of interesting, right? Because you can argue that there is intrinsic value from uh, some of the most sensitive data that financial institutions hold like PII. But what is arguably even more valuable than PII is the actual asset, right? And in the context of something like, uh, like uh, blockchain and Bitcoin, for example, if you can effectively take ownership of a, a currency which cannot be remitted back to the original person at a large enough scale, there's a fixed amount of return on investment that you can get if you're able to effectively break through those systems. And so, you know, as we think about this from an infrastructure perspective, we kind of ask that question, right, of which of these layers are most susceptible, which of these layers should we be proactive about, and which of these layers are the most valuable? And of course, there are standard um, requirements for a PCI or SOC2 compliant entity, et cetera, and those requirements will change as regulators start to understand the potential impact of quantum. But those are just some ways in which we're thinking about it from a sort of practical short to medium term applications perspective. Gotcha. And I know, Stephen, you bought about payments and stuff. Obviously, it has implications on that, but maybe just not yet. It's coming in the horizon. Anything um, you want to add? Well, it, not necessarily from the from the quantum side. I, I do think just from the cybersecurity side, you know, that that has just become that's really taken center stage. Right. And I think that it really, you know, with every every business process now, literally every single one, you have to bring this cybersecurity lens to it. Uh, and and I think that you know on one hand it's 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 terrifying you know what quantum might do, but again I just think practically speaking yeah but you know what right now someone will call an employee at your financial institution and through social engineering they'll with a lot less development work they'll be able to breach those systems right so but I I think it's just putting the spotlight on you know it really I mean I I think that literally. If you ask what what's keeping people up at night, you know, in in financial services, it's just the it's just the rate of of change, you know, relative to cybersecurity. Yeah. Before we move on to space, any advice? So for I have audience startups as well as executives in financial institutions. So any advice? What what they should tune into? It looks like there's a lot of barriers, right? It's not somebody who can build like an app, right? Quantum has a huge barrier for a startup. So any any advice for people who kind of want to learn more or evaluate? Have quantum as your nighttime reading right now. That's where <laughs> I will stop. Right? Okay. I, I wouldn't spend any time or, or investment in, into quantum. Uh, as a lighter note to, to finish the quantum topic, um, what is the, uh, the CFO's uh, wet dream about quantum, right? <laughs> They will. They they expect quantum to help them close their books as quickly as possible. <laughs> Good luck with that. Pretty expensive way to close the books. <laughs> well, that's good. We we need the humor sustained. Let's let's try to wrap up. I I want to get into space, space internet. I think Riyadh. I think you were the one who brought it up. Uh, kind of space two O. There is space tourism. I've heard about. Obviously, there's space mining, energy harvesting, but the low Earth orbit satellites that are kind of creating a different internet network, that's kind of more at a commercial level. The others are still kind of exploration. I know Elon Musk was famously asked, when will AGI happen? He said 2029. I think he added, um, I looked at a paper or a blog, um, and, and he said that 
the AGI will be in Mars as well. So implying that there will be Mars colony. So how real is space 2.0? And, and, and it, like we're talking about it as a mega trend. And um, is the LEO, the internet alternative internet um, uh, that the low earth orbit satellites provide, is that the big use case? I'll give you my take on, on that. I'm, I'm quite involved with the LEO deployments, you know, for the last few years. Uh, you know, first of all, I mean, this is a second like uh, wave, right? That we've seen. We've seen one in the uh, in the '90s, right? Where tens of billions of dollars went into Leo and it went nowhere, pretty much, right? Or at least not the result one wanted. Uh, a number of things happened, like you know, the cost of launching, the cost of building satellites, and the need to have the internet pretty much everywhere, right? So that sort of like you know uh, pushed the second wave to 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 move ahead, but like five six years ago. Uh, so you have a few constellations that are sort of like, you know, making it real. I mean, SpaceX, they probably have more than 3,000 satellites today at, you know, between 500, 700, 800 kilometers. You have Amazon with their constellations launching soon, you know, as a plan. You have OneWeb. You have about like five, six large ones in thousands of satellites. And you have about like 20, 30, you know, focus on IoT, Internet of Things, or, or Voice, you know, that are also launching, right? I think the interesting thing for me here, um, plus the challenges, right? The interesting thing is, uh, see, this th th there was a start launching this constellation and doing internet anywhere, or at least like trying to push it everywhere, right? Then it's evolving with new players coming in. Uh, SpaceX working with T-Mobile to have like direct to satellite and having a phone toward this constellation. Apple, iPhone 14, you know, launching like, you know, direct communication to a Leo constellation, having SOS type service and evolving towards that. Uh, same thing with like Qualcomm and Iridium and, and Google and a few others. So you see this whole congregation of like, uh, you know, big players, you know, I'm talking US here, but the same happening in China and a few other places. Uh, and it's sort of like, you know, attempting to change this whole internet connectivity model where space becomes the network, right? Uh, so, so that opens up a lot of interesting questions as far as, uh, you know, how would that basically uh, interface and complement all the 5G and 6G, submarine networks, terrestrial networks. Uh, so I, I think that, that that's that's the positive thing is that the, the, you know, the involvement of like a large number of players with like, you know, I'm counting at least 40, 50 billion dollars invested the last few years just in that. But then there are the, the real questions. I mean, the business case, will it work? Uh, the geopolitics behind it, because now we're talking space, we're talking almost no regulation, we're talking basically, uh, you know, access to any country anywhere. So you have a number of challenges, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, would this work? How would countries react? How it will impact like information technology, data center build, edge build, all of that. And I, and, and I think that's where a lot of the thinking is going at the moment. Gotcha. You should read history, Christopher Columbus and the colonization or, or or the discovery of the United or the Americas at that time. Um, anyone else? This is fascinating, right? Space, the final frontier. Um, obviously, we're kind of a very tiny piece of it, and we're exploring also a tiny piece. Anyone else? Yes. So from from space perspective, you know, um, we do work with DOD and we work with, with, uh, with similar interests, right? Um, a lot of activity is going on in space, and from an AI perspective, we are being asked to to run AI models inferencing on on birds up there in orbit, right? So you don't have to send as much data down. So there's a lot of interest. 
the amount of, as as uh, as was said earlier, right, the number of satellites that are going up is increasing, but also the the power of those satellites is also increasing, and the use cases that we see uh, from uh, geospatial intelligence to multi-spectral modal intelligence is is just exploding in in space as well, right? So, gotcha. It's a very very uh, interesting space to continue to <laughs> no pun intended um so or pun intended um the the um it, it is it is the final frontier and i think a great use case for edge um ai or edge kind of compute um jag so that's that's great that you're in that space um we're coming at the bottom of the hour so i'd like to wrap up and before i wrap, wrap up i'd like to go around the table one more time maybe reverse order with steven you starting first so Talk a little bit about what you're focusing on this year and who would like to you who which kind of segment you'd like to connect with and how people can find you on social media or other places. And then we'll go around. Excellent. Well, thanks. Thanks, Patty. I think it's been a, a great uh, conversation. And, and I feel like I've been scribbling notes of all the homework and follow up I want to do after the you know, after we after we get off. Uh, you know, I, I think that that for me, you know, again, it comes back to being able to drive AI, real AI solutions. And, you know, and, and I'm seeing that uh, actually I'm seeing it very challenged in financial services, to be honest. I think that, you know, even some of my colleagues that work at some of the top banks, they themselves can't get their hands on the data to be able to, you know, to work on on, on models. And so I, I think that the growth is probably for us is going to come in other areas. We've been working a lot with industrial companies uh, in the electro, electric uh, utility industry. Uh, and so just making it, making AI practical is kind of like the watchword for this, uh, you know, for this year. Uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll just say on, just on the um, natural language processing, chat GPT, uh, you know, I think that there's obviously um, it's been impressive what they've done so far, but we'll see if there's if there's more than just hype, if there's if there's really, truly uh, use cases and uses that actually uh, uh, right now it's all in the fascination stage. Um, we're experimenting with it. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what actually comes to market in terms of real solutions. Gotcha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, like Stephen, I'm I'm taking my notes as we're going through this, and it's been a pleasure to be on the on the podcast. At Helix, the thing that we're focused on is how do we make finance human. And so for 2023, what we're really focused on is how do we create the next generation of unique human-centric embedded banking products. And realistically, what that breaks into is things like, as Stephen said, we're, we built the entire core from scratch in this kind of cloud-native multi-tenant environment. So how do we make data available so companies like Stevens and others can use it to build net new things? How do we find the right kinds of companies in verticals outside of pure fintech, like insurance, right, where we can actually meaningfully impact people's lives by trying to bring things closer together? You know, we're in the pilot for FedNow, which is launching uh, next quarter. And we're building that actually in a core agnostic way. So you can send real-time payments to nodes across the financial ecosystem without necessarily opening an account on Helix. And so we're really excited to see how does that actually bring all of us closer and make it easier for people to start living more sustainable financial lives. And so in terms of the types of folks that we love to talk to, if you're running a company where you have an existing ecosystem, you think there's an opportunity to build something new um, and actually solve a real problem uh, for your customers, and you want the modern tech stack to do that, I think we're the, we're the people to do that with. Or if you just want someone to talk to uh, about how embedded finance is starting to change the space and you're trying to craft your strategy either as a financial institution or as a non-financial institution, uh, you can hit us up. We'll be happy to help. 
Sounds good. Thank you, Ahan. Jags? Thank you. Um, uh, anybody in the fintech world, right, running AWS for their AI inferences. We just did a, a benchmarking exercise um, paid by AWS where we showed our uh, our model optimization improves inference speed by almost 47%. Wow. Right? And cost savings are, are equivalent to about 33% of what you do for inferencing today. So I'd love to hear in the uh, fintech space if you're doing deep learning inferences on the, on the cloud, not just... Uh, AWS, but any cloud, we can help uh, in in terms of reducing the cost, right? So love to hear from you. Gotcha. Lewis had to leave because he had a call, but they're doing some very cool stuff. They've raised Series B and just kind of um, if you want to check them out at Eigentech um, uh, on the web and on social media. So Sean, your closing remarks. So at Helios, we're unlocking 38% of human communication, right? Through AI, ML, basically everything we're doing uh, to tap into these important audio conversations. Uh, that for us is impactful for anybody who's really analyzing these. So we talk about the world of buy-side traders, potentially investor relations now. Uh, even you know VC firms looking at macro trends because our voice data at scale can start to give you sort of volatility forecast for the space. So... I um, certainly would like to talk to anybody interested in it, but we're unlocking this, you know, very important channel. Uh, a lot of the tools we talked about and, and pieces are important to us too. And uh, certainly thank you for having me, you know, on the podcast as well. So this was a great conversation one I'm, you know, excited well, to share with my network too. Yeah, thank you for coming and thank you everyone for sharing. Um, my priorities are kind of similar. So obviously expanding into the AI domain. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to have the AI focused podcast, but I'm also helping some underrepresented founders kind of amplify their um, message and what they're building and also helping them um, scale their startups. So that those are my two priorities, Patty, um, here at FinTech Talk in iValley. But it was a pleasure. I enjoyed immensely. Hope you enjoyed as well. Thank you for all the listeners. Um, um, it's, it's a wrap. <laughs>